Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Hey, Kevin. Yes, Rebecca. I have news. You always have news, and it always happens when we're sitting in this closet. We are officially the CEOs of a media empire. Okay, despite the fact that we can't both be CEOs. We're co-CEOs. <laughs> All right, so let's just face it. I'm the CEO. You're the CEO. All right, but get, get to this media empire thing. Well, you know how at the end of our podcast we say, brought to you by Partners in Crime Media? Right. That's actually a thing now. I thought it was just a BS thing. No, it's a thing. It exists. It's actually an entity. It's a DBA uh-huh. in business parlance. Yeah. And we actually have another show that is going to be sharing the Partners in Crime Media affiliation. Oh, we're going to be like a network. We adopted a show. Okay. Which one is this? So we have a fan. Yep. Her name is Kelsey Erickson. Mm-hmm. You may know her on Twitter as Just Kelso. Yeah. Kelsey has a very unusual day job. She has been involved in the body transport business. You mean like as a hitman? No, like she goes to crime scenes or scenes of deaths or just places where people died uh, and picks up the body and brings it to wherever it has to go. She's doing God's work. She's doing a death transporter's <laughs> work. <laughs> anyway, Kelsey has an adorable little podcast. It's called Deathcast. It's mm-hmm. brand new. It only has a couple of short episodes. And I don't know. I think it's got a lot of potential. So I asked her if she would join our network. So if people want to sample Deathcast, how mm-hmm. can they do that? They can go to iTunes and search for Deathcast. They can go to Audio Boom and search for Deathcast. Any place you get your podcast, we're going to be submitting the feed to Stitcher, to Google Play, to all of those places. But right now, your best bet is Audio Boom or iTunes. Search for Deathcast, and you will see Kelsey Erickson and Partners in Crime Media. Can I tell you my favorite thing about Deathcast? Sure. It's supposed to be a podcast about death. Yeah. It's actually kind of an adorable podcast about Kelsey. (laughs) (laughs) You'll know what I mean when you listen to it. Give it a listen. All All right? right. Sure. So congratulations to Kelsey. And if you have a fantastic independent podcast, or at least think you do, feel free to get in touch with us if you're interested in joining our little media empire. We're at crimewriterson.com. And if you go there, you can tell us about your podcast, sign up for our newsletter, or you can use the Amazon link to buy all sorts of great stuff that you would normally buy anyway. So wait a minute. You can either join our network or buy stuff on Amazon? Absolutely. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to reveal our Crime Writers On book club pick. 
We'll take a deep dive into the crime drama of the summer, HBO's The Night Of, and we'll hear a fascinating interview that will make you change the way you feel about DNA evidence, plus a little update about the Adnan Syed case. So joining me now to help break that all down is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. I'm going to break it down. You are going to break it down. Also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. I'm here on vacation. Glad to be here. I understand you are joining us from your lakeside impromptu studio tonight. How's it all working out for you? Oh, it's pretty good so far. I was going to go in the closet like you guys, but there wasn't even an outlet or a light in there. So uh, I'm out in the basement instead. You're not on the porch overlooking the water? No, there's there might be too many antics out there. No, I'm actually looking out at the water. There's some geese that just went by. Nice. Mm. Nice atmosphere, mm-hmm. atmosphere. Yeah. And also with us is our favorite devil's advocate, crime and noir fiction writer, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Word up, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> I wait all week for that. All right, so Toby, first to you. As our listeners know, your publisher has been running a contest to give away a full set of books in your city trilogy, The Vault, Scorch City, and Invisible Streets. And you have some winners to announce this evening? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank everybody for participating. A lot of people signed up, which was great. I did pick one person from each of the three regions. The winners were Sarah Wilson of Glasgow, Scotland. Nice, yeah. Uh, Gene Simborski of Calgary, Alberta. All right. Which is in Canada. Hey. Yeah, we knew that, but keep going. <laughs> well, just for our for some of our, you know, geographically, geographically challenged, challenged <laughs> listeners. Okay. Exactly. And then uh, like everybody finally, from America, you mean? Yeah. From uh, south of the equator, Sandy McCoy of Cairns North. Wait. Of so where? Cairns North. So, like, there wasn't a single American winner of this contest? Well, is the U.S. and Canada were kind of... That's cool, though. Threw them all into a little mixer. I like it. So the worldwide winner is... This is a place I haven't heard of. Cairns North? Yeah. It's in Australia. Oh, in Australia. Okay. I've heard of Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Damn, I thought it was like some island or something. Yeah, you know how like when the Olympic procession comes yes. out and you're like, yeah, I've never heard of that country before. Yes, that's a great, <laughs> that should be a drinking game right there, right? When it's a country you've never heard like of. Like legitimately yeah. never heard and of. And you don't remember from two years before from that those Olympics. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And you're like, so, oh, devil's asshole? I don't remember that country. No, Frank. the North Devil's Asshole Islands. Uh, this, exactly. <laughs> All right, Laura. So I understand to start our episode this week, you have a correction to issue. I do. So I have been called out by my husband for my lack of knowledge about all shows Alaska. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is it, does this stem from the famous Alaska, the Bush people? Bush people. It does. So there is a show, Alaska, the Bush People, but apparently somehow in my mind, I have co-mingled that with another show called The Mountain Men. Um, So Alaska, the Bush People is actually about the Brown family and their children who basically like live off the grid and call themselves a wolf pack. Um, (laughs) Oh, Yes, and they all That's have long beards, too. That's what my family calls too. ourselves, too. Are we a wolf pack, the four of us? No. That'd be great. We could get, like, jackets and shit. Yeah, yeah. We're like the pink ladies. We're not like a wolf pack. All right, all right Laura, Laura does. Laura, yeah, that's more corrections from Laura. Let's enjoy oh, this. Oh, there is. So the ma- the one that I actually was thinking of, and I totally messed up, is, is Mountain Men, and it wasn't even a guy in Alaska. It was this guy, Tom Orr, who's, like, in Montana and has dogs that hunt mountain lions, and his dog was actually Turbo, not Ginger. 
Oh, so, Ginger was a better name, though. Yeah. So my husband's like, seriously, how can you not know that? And I'm like, how do you know all these things? He's like, how do you know all those BBC shows? So <laughs> touche. So basically, he is the paragon of masculinity. And we should just accept that he knows way more about the bush people, the mountain people than any of us ever will. Is that what you're saying? Apparently, he her, knows them all by name. Her husband runs into burning buildings. On purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it when the grill gets too hot. Her husband is so masculine that he tells other people to run into Burling Greenland. He's a fire yeah. chief. That's right. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't have to do that anymore. He sits at his truck. So, Kevin, I understand that you have one more piece of business. We've gotten a ton of listener responses and feedback from our last episode about Anand Syed's appeal. And a lot of people asking one question, what is next, which what? apparently we didn't answer. So you did some research. What did you find out? Yeah. Well, you know, I did ask legal Siri. Colin Miller. Colin Miller. <laughs> because the last time we checked, you know, the, the next step on the timeline was 10 days after Judge Welch's decision, which was the state could ask the judge to reconsider his decision. Those 10 days have gone by, and apparently that hasn't happened. And that's, I think, a lot of observers would probably say there wasn't much chance that the judge was going to reconsider that. So the next d- sort of deadline is 30 days after the decision, which will come on Monday, August 1st. And that is the state has that much time to file an appeal with the Court of Special Appeals of Maryland. This is sort of their appellate court, sort of their, not their Supreme Court, but sort of like as high up as you would go when when seeking an appeal. And so there's three things that could happen if the state files a motion there. One, the state could straight up deny the state's leave for appeal. Mm-hmm. And that means going, you know, the next step is uh, retrial. Trial, yeah. They could straight up just grant the state's leave to appeal and then... No new trial. No new trial. We reverse the judge's decision and then we were back there. Or they could ask Justin Brown and Adnan's defense to respond. Mm-hmm. I mean, there may be a flat out denial. Uh, it's, I think it's kind of rare where they look at it and just say, oh, yeah, without any other argument, we're just going to kick it out. But... We're looking at 30 days now. That's the next benchmark for something to happen. And, you know, I guess if 30 days comes and goes, then what ends up happening is we're in the state where we're expecting a date for a retrial or for the state to say that we will, no process, we will not proceed with uh, any further case against a non-Syed. Or for the state to make some sort of deal with a non-Syed. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. So the next deadline is uh, Monday, August 1st. Okay. So basically did a bunch of research and found out that we have to wait again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, what do you think? This is the legal system. Isn't this what our whole episode was about before? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. You still got a couple of years to go, though. As Tom Petty said, waiting. It's the hardest part. Oh, no. It's the hardest part. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about what we're all here to talk about. What are we here to talk well, about? Well, I think we're here to talk about a show that our listeners basically, I don't know, talked me into starting watching, although I probably would have anyway, because I do love all things HBO. And HBO has once again wowed its audience with an unexpected summer drama unlike anything else on television. It's called The Night Of. And instead of subjecting us to true detective, season three another <laughs> confounding season of that show thank god for that we did we did get the night of it's moody it's deep it's lead character is vulnerable but we have no idea if he is reliable so for our listeners who haven't yet seen the night of it's only had two episodes so far i recommend watching it we're not going to talk about it in such a way that spoils things oh well, i might spoil things a little bit but it's only two episodes in so we yeah. can't do too much damage and as usual this is going to be the kind of conversation i think if you've never seen the show you might find interesting anyway 
or you can pause here, watch the night of, and then join us when you're caught up. So going into the show, we've seen the promos. We know going into it that it's all about someone being arrested for murder. In the first half, we do see the unwitting trail of evidence that our protagonist, Nas, is leaving on his night, the night of, that leads to a murder that is the central story in this series. Now, Mm -hmm. I think the setup, I think the first episode was very interesting in a narrative sense, in a visual sense, and I'd love to get your all first impressions on it. Toby, how did you feel about the setup of the first episode of The Night Of, how quietly, darkly, weirdly the whole thing was handled? I thought it was good. I mean, there's two parts. There's the part where his sort of the journey he takes from the moment he leaves his house to when he gets arrested, essentially. You you can just see that they're setting up things that you're going to come back to Well, you go into a, a convenience store, sort of a edgy interaction with a hearse driver. Um, there's just all these different things, uh, different cameras pick them up at different places. Witnesses. So I thought that was all good. And it, it sort of the payoff will come later, but there's certainly there's a lot of stuff there. And then the second part, and maybe we'll talk about this separately, is what happens at the police precinct after he's arrested and sort of the things that happened there. But yeah, I thought it was, it was encouraging. I thought I thought it was good. And by encouraging, you mean it was maybe going to be a good TV show? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, it's one of those things, I think, where the setup is uh, seems pretty strong and it's what they do with it. I, I, I kind of feel like True Detective, I would have thought the first couple of episodes were encouraging and then it didn't follow through. So You mean season yeah. two of True Detective? I would say season one more oh. so. Season two, I never found encouraging. Season one, I thought the beginning was pretty strong and then it ended badly. I guess that's where we'll have to agree to disagree forever and ever, Toby. What about you, Laura? What did you think of the opening and this sort of opening sequence, the way this whole story was set up on the night of, the way we as viewers are sort of brought through the scenes, seeing the potential future witnesses, seeing the potential future CCTV footage, seeing the potential future fingerprints and, you know, all that stuff we're seeing without a lot of exposition, just sort of watching it unfold. How do you think that they handled this opening of this series? Well, for me, I was just cringing because I was like, oh, this guy is going to be screwed. Every time something happened, I'm like, no. Oh, seriously, fingerprints on the shot glasses. And then there's the scene with the knife where this girl, you know, that was, you know, where she's having him stab between his hands and her hands. And it was definitely, I thought, very clear watching it where this is going to be going. You know, I really liked it. I liked the characters. I thought it was really interesting, the character of his attorney when his attorney finally showed up. I heard that was originally going to be James Gandolfini. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I was thinking, what a different show it would have been with him, because I I can't imagine him in that role. Gandolfini wanted to do this as like his post-Sopranos Project And, of course, he passed away before I had a chance to do that. And I think the original pitch was this was going to be like a continuing series, uh, like True Detective or, or something like that. And HBO passed. And then when they came back after his death with the idea of it being a limited series, you know, that's when they got John Turturro, would be very different. And, and I am actually enjoying John Turturro's plane of this this lawyer Jack Stone. We will talk about John Turner in a yeah. second, but Kevin, I'm curious to know what you thought of in the setup because we were watching it together and 
We were like a little bit chatty during the <laughs> unfolding of this. It was like, Rebecca, I'm trying to watch. No. Um, <laughs> okay, I was a little bit chatty. Well, look, you know, it, it's like picking up a, um, a, a book when you start watching this TV show. It's not, it's not a surprise. You're not expecting this to be a sitcom. You know it's a murder mystery. You know, basically the setup. You see the guy. You know he's going to be involved, and it's someone's going to die. Trailers okay. for months. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, okay. So it's not a spoiler that this is coming. You're anticipating this all throughout episode one, and then because, and I think it's because we as viewers have become so savvy with this that it went up a whole other level here and toyed with us because we see him on video at the Easy Pass, right? And we see him leaving this trail every, innocently leaving this trail, which we're thinking of, oh, later on, they're going to use this to get with him and the witness at the store and he's on videotaping the store, all this stuff. And in the end, none of that stuff yet anyway has come into play. They didn't need to like go back and trace the steps like it's a Law and Order episode. I mean, they caught him like a whole other different way. Yeah. But the whole time... It's very much like an Alfred Hitchcock movie because I remember Hitchcock saying, if you had two people and they're sitting at a desk and a bomb goes off, it scares you. But if you just have two people sitting at a desk and you know there's a bomb underneath there and they're talking about whatever, the tension is going to drive you and the audience crazy. And I think that's kind of how I felt. It was like I knew someone's going to come in and happen and everybody eventually is on their way to the precinct and nobody knows that he's there because he's actually – the suspect, I mean, that tension, like, really got me. I thought it was really well done. And I know other people didn't care for that. They thought it was kind of contrived that everybody shows up at once. Well, I actually agree with you on the aspect about showing us the future evidence and not telling us about it. And by the way, this is a remake of a series that was a British series. Yeah. Am I right about that? Okay. So, by the way, I'm doing my very, very best to not look it up. And to not get spoiled, <laughs> I do it every single time. The only time I've ever successfully not spoiled myself was with The Killing because there was no English translation of the spoilers for the original <laughs> series of The Killing. But I am doing my best. It's important to me to not know what's going on in this one. I really want to try for you guys. But Oh, good for you because I already looked it up. <laughs> but I am I am. It may playing, not go the same way. It may not go the same way. But it is. I do like the way it's playing with what we expect. Mm -hmm. So it's like we are now part of it. We've seen the CCTV footage. We've seen him run his hands along the railing. We've seen the knife game, which we know later in trial is going to be brought up as she had a defensive wound against yeah. him. Like and the we blood smear on the cab. And but, he, but he gets her from the back of the hand, right? Does it matter? No, he got it from the palm of the hand. The palm he, of the he hand. He stabbed her right through the hand. And that's going to be what we know right. from watching. Which a, would look like a defensive wound. How do you know that? From watching a ton uh, right. of procedural we, crime TV. Uh, I was a journalist for a gazillion years. Yeah. But you also know from watching but, a ton of procedural but crime But how did I, I learned it from watching TV. <laughs> right. So it's like, I, I do like the way it's playing with us in that way. So I, I do want to talk about one other thing about sort of setting and mood. One of the things that HBO does very well is they sort of put you in a universe with these shows, you know, and they're sort of like in True Detective season one, it was all about Louisiana, but it wasn't sexy, voodoo, hypnotic Louisiana. It was like industrial, country, postmodern, southern post gothic. Exactly. And with this show, I, I feel very much like it's sort of a very gray, mm -hmm. very scale like if you look at the the police station set for instance it is so much different from every other new york city police precinct that you see portrayed on tv it's very sort of stark it sort of has that very british very stark 
vibe. Toby, did you pick up on the way they sort of did this like presentation with the, you know, the sort of cinematography and the colors and the costuming? Does it feel like a little bit noir to you? Yeah, I think they do. They do a lot of kind of interesting things. And I realize I just said interesting again for like the <laughs> third okay. time. You know what? Only the eight people playing the crime writers on I'll drinking drink. game. I'll yeah. drink, Toby. Pass right me your martini. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't like. I just don't know how those things. I don't know if Ching. in these like holding cells are they usually right next to the office desks where they keep their files and stuff. I just assumed that because Richard Price did the writing that it's going to be pretty accurate because uh-huh. I think that's what he spends his time doing when he's not writing is hanging out at, at precinct stations. I thought that in the second episode, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but they did some interesting sort of cinematography stuff to you know try and give you a sense of how disoriented Nas is when he's sort of brought into the penal system. But they do a lot of things where it's either out of focus or that you're watching everything from a reflection in a puddle. And I thought that was very effective. I think it's effective, too. I really, really like the style and the presentation of this show so far. Laura, I know that you've really been focusing on some of the stuff that you feel sort of dread about as somebody who's sort of trained in defense. But I'm going to ask you to step back and just look at the artistry for a minute. How do you like the style of The Night Of so far? I really like it. The last scene... When they take him to Rikers Island, it was just, I felt like the setting and the way that they set that up and the way that they showed him and the other people. And he was handcuffed to the one other guy walking side by side. And then when he walked in, it was just like, this was a jail that you knew was just a horrible place. And it really, you know, it it really set the scene in such a way that you just were waiting to see what's going to happen next in this uh, story. You know, I will say as a, I've lived in New Hampshire now since for like 20 years, but uh, longer than 20 years, actually, 24 years. But growing up in New York, I can tell our listeners this. If you're not familiar with the New York area, you've probably heard the name Rikers Island on shows like Law and Order and so forth. Look it up. It is maybe the most dreadful place on the planet. It's like an environmental disaster. It's this island that's been turned into a prison. It's next to LaGuardia Airport. There's a long road that drives to Rikers Island, and it really is like... It's like, what was that old 70s movie, Escape from New York? It's like like you're going to a place that is designed to isolate in the worst possible way. You mean like Australia? Well, but in miniature, and it was built in such a way that it's literally sinking, so it's also like this huge environmental problem. Anyway, so Kevin, what do you think of the style of the show and sort of how it's been put forth to us as a piece of art? I I like that they are going for the gloomy, gritty New York, uh, not the gentrified New York, but I mean, it really had a a sense of place. You know, the whole Jackson Heights community where you have Pakistani American community there. It seemed, you know, very authentic. I think it's probably because they shot it there. It was on a back lot. Some of the cityscape, like when they were hanging out at the river and, you know, the view of uh, the city was was really beautiful. I think they were, you know, really trying to go for something very bright in the beginning and then turn it around and make it dark after the crime and just sort of like it's a, you know, a, a clash of worlds. Of course, you know, the set design of that apartment 
with the deer and the that's just the weirdest freaking apartment ever. It's a ever. little bit true detective. It's actually it's like so it's actually pink. like a brownstone. Yeah. yeah. But I, mean, I think I think yeah. the deer on the wall was supposed to be very symbolic of being yeah. of being both innocent and both Let's get to symbolism in yeah. just a couple of minutes. I do want to say one other thing about the sort of setup of the show and the design of the show. The device, so Nas is, is the protagonist of the show. Uh, if our listeners haven't seen the show so far, he is the person who was arrested for this murder. He is a young 22-year-old man. We see at the beginning of the show he's a tutor to some of the basketball players at his college. He's invited to a party. I think as viewers we all expect the party is where he's going to get in trouble. But as it turns out, his friend who's supposed to drive him to the party ditches him, so he ends up taking his dad's cab because his dad, who's obviously is a cab driver, and he takes the cab into Manhattan, but doesn't know how to operate the cab. And one of my favorite aspects of the first episode of that show, because it was a great device, I think, to set the whole thing up, was that he didn't know how to operate the on-duty, off-duty sign on top of the car. And that's basically what led all these people to try to, like, hop into the backseat of his car. And he kept having to say, like, no, no, I'm not. But they were like, turn off your sign, and he didn't know how. And it was a great illustration of sort of his lack of savvy, his lack of worldliness, and also the practicality of like New York life, the assumptions that people make, a light's on a cab or off on a cab, like you can either get in that car or you can't get in that car. And that's how the victim ends up in his car. I just thought it was a very, very, very clever setup. Laura, before we make a transition and talk about like procedural stuff and all the stuff that happened in episode two and all the stuff I know we really are dying to talk about, you sent me an email earlier this week and you said something about um, trust, you think, is a major theme in the series so far. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, you know, it sort of emerged in the first episode, you're sitting there and you're waiting for Nas to get an attorney. You're you're very wary of Detective Box. And then, I, you know, the attorney arrives and you're like, oh, and he says, don't talk to anyone. And you're like, oh, thank God, somebody he can trust. And you're thinking he can trust this attorney to look out for him. And then in the second episode, for me, that kind of shifted. You know, you find out that this attorney maybe isn't as qualified as you think he is. You're seeing his sign on the subway and realizing he's never had a murder case before and he really doesn't care about his client side of the story. And you're thinking, maybe this isn't somebody that he can trust. And I feel like there's this sort of overarching theme of, you know, within the criminal justice process, who do you trust, if anyone? And I can see that sort of going forward in the narrative now that he's in jail. And who do you trust there? Do you talk to other inmates? Do you trust other inmates? Because you've got this very naive protagonist, who does he trust in this process? And I feel like you think initially it's one person, and then maybe it's not the person you think it is. Because I came out of the second episode thinking, well, Detective Box may have been pushing it, but maybe he's actually going to be the decent one here. I had the, actually the exact opposite reaction in that I kind of felt like Box was so manipulative in that his attempts at being friendly were just to get Nas talking to the point where when he won't talk, Box goes and makes him wear this Harvard sweatshirt when he goes to wherever he goes. I don't think it was Rikers, but when he goes to the... When he goes to jail, the city jail to be held city before jail, his right. arraignment, yeah. So, I mean, he, he doesn't get what he wants and then he like sets it up for this guy, for Nas to get like the maximum hard time. And then with the Turturro character... You know, it's going to go one of two ways. Like he's sort of set up as sort of the shaggy dog guy. He seems like he's kind of street savvy, but hasn't in the past handled anything that's at all like this. It's either it's one of those shaggy dog stories where he succeeds 
or it's probably more realistically one where he gets in over his head and like ends up totally screwing things up. You know, I, I think when we talk about trust, we as an audience don't actually know if we can trust Nas. He apparently sleeps through or is blacked out during the homicide, but did he? I mean, we don't really know because he believes he isn't the killer. We believe he isn't the killer in part because he's old, charming and doe-eyed. And by the way, he is played so well by Riz Ahmad is the name of the actor. He's going to be a you know a giant star in a year because he's in Rogue One. The new Star Wars movie. So I'll see him a whole bunch of times before you were back. <laughs> but I mean, is it he is and this is one of the re I think it's because of him is one of the reasons why people are, are making comparisons to serial, where you have a, a man of color who seems to be he's about to be railroaded by the system. He has and he, giant eyes like a dairy cow. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he just seems so but you know, I don't actually know whether or not I can believe as a viewer, his perspective. You mean what we saw as but viewers? It's all very as, convenient. It could be very Fight Club. Yeah. Well, it could be just what he remembers, not what happened. We don't know, and that's like the brilliant thing about sure. it. Sure. The, the the missing piece of time could be something that he's blocked out, and so the audience doesn't see. Or that entire night. Well, maybe the videotape goes back and it shows other things that we didn't actually see. Who knows? Maybe. See, if, if that's the case, I would find that frustrating. I mean, I think the thing is when you set something up like this and you do it with such detail and such care that if you then introduce something new that you didn't show, not talking about the time when he supposedly blacked out, but if you throw something else into that sequence of when he's in the cab and he meets the girl and goes back to their place, that to me would be cheating. Mm -hmm. You know, it'd be one thing if you're sort of, hastily sketching out what happened that night and you think, oh yeah, well, there, there was this other thing that happened. But they've spent so much time and they've been so specific about things that I think tossing in something later in that timeline to me would seem like cheating. Like no, I, I think cheating. writing yeah. writing a book, I think I, I wouldn't do it. And I, and I imagine that either of the editors that I've worked with would be like, why would a reader trust you after you do that? Yeah, and, and like they've spent so much time making him look so, so guilty. They've yeah. piled on so much evidence against him for it in the end, for, for it to really be him would just sort of be anticlimactic. The, the the struggle of the story is really how does he get out of this and prove his innocence when so many things are pointing against him? Well, I am going to break up our conversation right now. I'm going to give like a five-minute piece of our airtime to someone who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to the procedural stuff, because I want to talk about the procedural that stuff. That sounds like a huge mistake. Well, <laughs> here's the thing, Toby. We're not lawyers. <laughs> That's right. But sometimes- I'm the grinder. Sometimes we pretend we are. We have a tendency to be a little overconfident in our legal opinions. And uh, the night of sort of takes place in New York, in the tri-state area, uh, my home city- of which I know nothing about the <laughs> rules and procedures around arrest, around the way crimes are prosecuted. Luckily, however, we have a listener and a fan named Joshua Reinitz, and he wrote me an email months ago and said, if you ever need a criminal defense attorney to weigh in on some topic, please reach out to me. He reached out to me again this week and said he's been watching the night of, so I gave him a quick call. And I asked him a few of the more technical questions I thought might come up in our conversation about the night of. This is about a five-minute conversation I'm going to play for you right now. And um, first, I asked Joshua Reinitz just to run through his credentials for us real quick. I've been an attorney since 2003. Before that, I had a glorious career in women's basketball. Um, 
as a uh, eventually as a director of operations for a college basketball team. Since then, I've done uh, mainly criminal defense here in New Jersey only. I've been part of a team that's tried uh, multiple murder trials, uh, all the way down to uh, DWIs, which is uh, what I specialize in a lot of here in New Jersey. One of the things that happened in the first episode was that we see Nas not ask for a lawyer for a long time, which made me crazy. But then he did. And then it was like somebody said, it's too late. And he was being booked at that time. Um, Can you not ask for a lawyer when you're being booked? Well, you can ask for a lawyer at any time. I think what they were saying is they've already processed him, so they're they're going to go through with the processing. Um, and just asking for a lawyer doesn't eliminate anything really that's come before, especially if you've been Mirandized already. And I know there's already an issue in the show about what when he was Mirandized. I don't think they showed it on screen, probably intentionally. Well, you actually, since you have the expertise in um, DUI defense, I want to ask you, one thing that we saw also was the cops, they were forced to stay, obviously, well well after their shift, the ones who had driven him around after picking him Mm -hmm. up. And one cop said that they didn't let him go because they couldn't let him drive in that condition. They'd picked him up on a, you know, driving under the influence and suspicion, but they never tested him and they couldn't let him go. Now, he's in the back of a locked police car at this point, right? You need, like, those doors have to be open from the outside, right? Right. Was he under arrest, like, technically then at that point? Because he didn't feel like he could get out, right? Right. I mean, the the issue is, you know, for Miranda to apply, it has to be a custodial interrogation. And the issue is whether he's free to leave at that point. I would argue he isn't free to leave. So uh, should they have to Mirandize him? Well, maybe. The problem is, at that point, they didn't know what they were going to do with him because the one cop wanted to let him go. The other cop wanted to keep him and process him. So I think they were looking for advice from their sergeant, who I think ultimately told them that they had to take him back. So he, he certainly was not free to leave. I would argue you know, on his behalf that he was under arrest at that point for some sort of traffic violation, whether it was you know, reckless driving or not. Now, one of the tropes that we see in like just about every legal drama, every film, every TV show is the criminal defense lawyer telling his client, I don't want you to tell me your side of the story. I don't want to know the truth. I don't want to know what happened. I have to maintain my flexibility. How true is this? There's definitely different philosophies on it. For me, in general, I like the why and the how. I like, you know, watching those 48 hours episodes or, you know, Discovery ID stuff. There's nothing I hate more than they get to the end and there's no resolution. So, like, I I always want to know, like, what happened. You know, I hate movies that end open-ended. It just bothers me. Um, But in terms of dealing with clients, my personal philosophy is I want to get enough information so I can properly defend them. Whether you want the full information, you know, there's a certain time and a place that you want to do that. Are there people, I'm sure, that try to fit their story to what the, the state's version is? Absolutely. You know, ethically, you're not you're not going to go and you know misrepresent things to the court. I mean, if you look at OJ, you guys discuss the OJ stuff a lot, and all the stuff that's come out about OJ, it doesn't sound like anybody ever sat down with OJ, or maybe I'm mistaken, but I don't remember anybody sitting down with OJ and saying, "All right, now tell me what happened." Right. Now, in one sense, it, it makes it difficult to defend somebody if they've done it and they tell you exactly how they've done it. On another sense. You want to know what's out there so you don't walk into something. Right. But I I generally don't want to know everything right up front because I want to see 
the state's case because ultimately it's their burden. All right. So a couple of technical things. Uh, we yeah. see a visit from Nas's parents and we see the cop observing and recording that visit. Is that cool? Is that ethical or not? Fair game. So another scene that we see in episode two is we see the cop investigating the case sort of sidle up to Nas's cell and, you know, chat him up in a way that, you know, seems designed to elicit a confession. I mean, this is after he had the conversation with the prosecutor. You know, she says that that's, you know, she's like, how am I going to lose this one? Which I thought was a, a great scene. But then we see him sort of sidle up to the cell and, um, you know, chat him up casually. Ethical or not? If he's been Mirandized and if he has not invoked his right to an attorney, they can talk to him anytime they want. But if he has an attorney and they know it... Then they're not allowed to talk to him. So he wasn't allowed to have that conversation. Correct. If he has an attorney, they're not supposed to contact the defendant directly. All right. So I know that the law enforcement community can be tight. I know that you probably deal with, I'm not sure where in New Jersey you live, but I'm sure you deal with some of the same arresting officers again and again. Mm -hmm. Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. So as a defense lawyer, do you ever uh, chat with uh, police officers uh, by the vending machine at the police station? Yeah, we're not in police stations all that much. But, you know, I I think that in any business, you're making a mistake to be super adversarial when it's not necessary. Because there are going to be times that we may need the police to help us out, you know, or I may need information from the police. I think it's, you know, it'd be a mistake not to be cordial and not to be, not friendly, but I guess collegial is probably the best word. So at this point, I think in the series, we're only a couple of episodes in, Nas looks super, super, super guilty. Um, What is his best option or move or play? Like, what would you advise a client in his shoes to do at this point? Right now, I mean, the best thing to do is is to sit tight. Right now, I mean, there's not much he can do. He doesn't have an alibi. He doesn't have anything that would be like an automatic get out of jail free that I, that I could think of that you would want to go affirmatively present to the prosecutor. You know, one thing you may want to do independently, but it's difficult with him in jail, is to test him have some sort of toxicology test, whether it's a hair test or something like that, to figure out what she gave him. But other than that, I think you got to sit tight and try to wait till you get some information from the police and see what they have and then kind of craft your strategy after that. Laura, when you were watching the night of, how aware were you of some of those legal and procedural issues that I asked Josh about? Specifically, you know, not being able to get a lawyer during booking, sort of that casual conversation the cop tried to have uh, with Nas when he was in his cell. Was that stuff really ringing bells for you? Yeah, the conversation that Box was trying to have with him when he sat next to him, when he clearly knew he had an attorney, that was like making me cringe. You know, they can challenge that in court. That's not something that's going to get through. But, you know, I feel like they're showing you the worst of what can happen because you're anticipating that the system's going to be fair and just and all of that. But, you know, things do happen. And just the sort of, I wouldn't say intimidation, but it was intimidation when they're like, well, if you, you know, if you really want a lawyer, but, you know, you know, you can't do that now. And they're just sort of knowing that this guy is not savvy, that he doesn't know the system. They are really taking advantage of him and stuff like that makes me wild. So, yes, I was I was getting worked up when I was watching this. But, Laura, that just happened. I mean, that's just sort of part of their jobs. When we see that that little yeah. scene where the parents come to visit and the detective and the desk sergeant have sort of a quick conversation where the desk, the guy at the desk is like, should we pretend to have an argument right now about whether or not? Yeah. This is a, I mean, that's just them doing their jobs. Toby, yeah. did some of the procedural stuff as the most experienced juror on our panel, <laughs> did, this, did this stuff stick out to you, too? Yeah. And the 
timber taking trial, there wasn't a whole lot of like <laughs> police malfeasance. <laughs> um, I was watching it with my son, who's who's 19. You know, it was an opportunity to be like, look, if something happens, no matter how innocent you are, get a lawyer. Don't Just consent don't, to a search. <laughs> don't talk. You know, better call no Saul. Matter, no matter how much they're acting like they're your buddy, they're trying to give you a break, let's just get you home. If they're seriously looking at you, you need a lawyer. Do not talk. There's a little frustration when Nas was so sort of forthcoming with stuff. And I don't know how much of that was a combination of sort of naivete on his part or like after how many hours of being highly stressed from like fighting people off from getting into his cab to, you know, finding somebody murdered and then sitting in the back of the police car while he's watching these cops go in and out of this place. And With the murder weapon in his pocket, him. right? Plus he was taking yeah. tons of drugs and drinking and he wasn't a drinker. And, you know, his mental state is probably not like ideal to be handling that kind of situation. But it was the kind of thing where it's like, my God, it just seemed like the one thing that you would know would be... I'm not talking. Get me a lawyer. I'm guessing the audience was probably thinking half are thinking, oh, yeah, you should just come clean and tell the truth because you truthfully didn't do it. And I think the other half is saying, like, you know, keep your mouth shut, because even though it looks bad for you and there's no way to talk yourself out of it. You, in fact, Rebecca, I think we were watching and you like asked me like some question, like, should, shouldn't he, like, should he be talking or should he say something? No. And, I was asking the question, like, he's under arrest right now, even though he hasn't been Mirandized. Like, I was very acutely aware of the fact that he didn't know what his rights were. But also, you know, things like, you know, them patting him down for the knife, you know, before he left the station. Like, is that cool when you're not? It's, it's like there's a lot of just like little stuff that I just happen to know from like, you know, basically watching a Law and Order episode. By the way, Kevin, if you get pulled over and the cop says, can I look in your trunk? What do you say? Uh, no. You say, you need a warrant for that. You need that. a warrant for that. <laughs> and then I ask, am I free to go? Exactly. For me, it's a kind of, you know, it's one of those dilemmas. Because you hear people say this all the time. And to some extent, I buy into this too, not with legal stuff, but with like privacy stuff. Like, I don't actually have anything to hide, right? I don't. Mm-hmm. I haven't broken any laws, maybe inadvertently or whatever, but I haven't broken any laws. You mean after laws. Like, you get pulled over on Sunday? Oh, for not registering, for not, for not, for the for car? not inspecting my car. Yeah, By the so. way, <laughs> I was driving your unregistered car. I would be Ooh. the one to get the ticket. That's right. That's right. We didn't get, we didn't get one, though, did we? No, because anyway. we're so famous. We said, <laughs> we're on Crime Writers On. And <laughs> don't you know who go. we are? <laughs> anyway, so I don't have this. No, we don't have anything to hide. We haven't committed a crime. We haven't done any murders. And yet, yet I do feel like... It's not mistrust. It's just like the I have a right to not say anything. It's my right. Your as, constitutional right. It's my constitutional right. And I and maybe that just makes me sound like a nut who's watched too much Law and Order. But that's the stuff that sticks out to me when I when I watch these shows. Now I wonder. There, there's a really good. I don't know if it's a full chapter or a scene, but in the book Homicide by mm-hmm. David Simon, Kevin's who, favorite book. There's a really really good scene of a cop basically giving the spiel to a guy who's been brought in about how let's just you and me, once we get lawyers in, it gets complicated, just you and me, let's work this out. But it's very, it's very compelling and it really changed the way I thought about that kind of stuff. It's it's sort of like the, the conversation between Box and Nas, but like on steroids. 
it's uh, it's definitely worth looking up. And David Simon says in that chapter, he says, I don't know why anybody would ever talk to the cops. Right. The cops, they've just figured out how to do their job effectively. They're sure. not, yeah, like, they're, they're they're not plotting to like undermine yeah. the Constitution. No. They're just trying to figure out how to get the work they have to do done in the course of a day. I mean, that's really what their motivation is, just like all of our motivation is. And I don't want to sound like I'm anti-law like, law. Yeah, let's say we're not anti-cop by any, any stretch of the <laughs> no. imagination. But I'm saying, you, you know... I, I, yeah, because I'll go back to Box, the detective in this show. I mean, he's operating just on the kind of on the boundary. But, I, you know, I don't think he was quite as I mean, he even, I think, had some hesitation in this case about charging Nas. And there seemed to be a point where he was holding off on actually charging him because he felt like something was a little bit off on this case. And that's why I still think he's going to be a decent character. You know what, Laura? I feel like, and this is your fault. It's your fault <laughs> for getting me completely hooked on British procedural crime and British mystery novels and British TV. I feel like that's the British narrative holdover here because in all of the British procedural stuff, even though the rights they read them when they're arrested sound completely, excuse my language, fucked up when you're American yeah. because the rights are basically like, you don't have to talk, but it may be in your best interest to talk because you may want to say something now that you plan to use as a defense. Like taking court. a breathalyzer. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But despite that, their whole procedural stuff is like, you can't arrest people or talk to people until you have something. And there's disclosure in the interview of what you have. And I feel like... What we're seeing with Box might be some holdover from that, that British you know, mm -hmm. origin story. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. But I really, really want to talk about the John Turturro character, Jack Stone, the lawyer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Joe showed up, the ambulance chaser at the right place at the right time. Private lawyer who seems to be hanging out in jails and... You know, he happened to pick up Nas's case because he overheard something. And um, before we talk about the big question about the John Stewart character, can we just talk about this? Kevin, what is the symbolic and narrative meaning of whatever the fuck is going on with his feet? <laughs> <laughs> that is the big question about the John Turturro. Uh, you can find a couple different symbolic meanings to it. I Keep mean, one, it literary. Okay. Well, one would be you could say that it symbolizes his inability to uh, have his footing and a, a, a being on solid ground. It shows his flaws. Usually a lot of times character flaws are internal. Here's one that's external. Yeah. If our listeners haven't seen the show, John Turturro, who's the lawyer, is wearing like a typical lawyer suit. And like Birkenstock sandals with bare feet, and he no, has. No, he's sort rumpled. Of, he's rumpled from head to he's toe. He's rumpled, yeah. But yeah. but he open toe. Takes off that creepy cape. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know I mean, and I he mean, has some sort of infection on his. He's got that, eczema. Yeah, that, he, that people eczema. can see because he's right. walking up to strangers and they're asking him about it. Yeah, and he's scratching his feet on the, <laughs> uh, you know, on the <laughs> subway. I think there might be more there, and I just want to run this by you guys. First of all, a totally superficial observation: the apartment that they showed John Turturro living in looks an awful lot like the apartment that Louis C.K. lives in on the FX show Louis, and I can't help but wonder if it's the same apartment. Also, John Turturro's ex-wife, Jack Stone's ex-wife, seems to be a very accomplished and put-together person, as does his, I think, teenage son. Um, his ex-wife is African-American, and his son just seems like a scholar. He's sort of sitting there doing homework during their brief scene together. And the whole thing around him makes me think that he was somebody once who had a fall that everyone is sort of rooting for to come back. And we see this little scene at the end of episode two where the judge at the bail hearing 
says to him, you know, addresses him by John. Addresses him by John and says, like, you were in the right friend place. Friend of the family or right, right place, right, right time. Yeah, friend yeah. of the. And he says, right place, right time. And he's like, I'm proud of you. Like that. Well, good was, for you. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was like I don't know. It made me think that. People are rooting for him because there's more there. I don't know. Laura, am I crazy to, to, to no. think there's more there? No, I, I hadn't had thought of it that way. But I think because I was thinking of it like this guy's just trying to succeed. You know, he's putting his name everywhere. He's on the darn subway with his like like a phone book lawyer ad. In Spanish. <laughs> But maybe that Did you was see what it was? It was like, like no fee until you're free. <laughs> it's a good slogan. Like Better call Saul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think you could have something there, Rebecca. I, that that would actually add a lot of interest to his character. There's more to his character than that. Toby, I want to throw by you a really interesting piece of dialogue that occurred in episode two. Nas's parents come to visit him when he's in holding. And, you know, you heard me talking with Josh Ryan. It's about the fact that the detective taped that conversation that he had with his parents but one of the things that his mother says you know after meeting the detective is that he seems like a nice man and Nas responds with he's a subtle beast what did you think of that piece of dialogue yeah I mean it's interesting it's not the kind of thing that I think people would normally say in the course of a conversation Mm -hmm. Um, but I think they probably wrote it and thought it sounded pretty good it is effective in sort of exposing Nas's new understanding of him, whereas before he seemed to sort of at least want to trust him, you know, pretty clearly he starts to realize that these little gestures come with strings attached. It's not altruism on Box's part. Now, Kevin, race in the justice system is a continuing theme. We saw in, in these two episodes alone, black, white, Pakistani defendants, people sort of in the in the system. At sentencing, we even hear the judge tell the black defendant, you know, you want Jew time, do Jew crime. Is this going to be about race, you think, this show? I, I That line was actually very surprising, and I thought it was a bad omen for Nas because I think that it shows a systemic prejudice against defendants of color, and I think that they're putting that out there. One of the things that stuck out to me in that bail hearing was that we saw Nas spend that horrible night in the holding cell in the jail in the city, and then we see him, you know, one of the people that he's locked up with, like, beats up one of the other people, like, really, really viciously, and you're just thinking the whole time, like, he's going to get, you know, chewed up by these guys, going to be horrible, and then you hear the court sort of read the charges against him, and then you see all those like super tough guys, like they're like a little bit impressed. Like, damn. Yeah, he's got some street cred now. He's got some street cred. Yes, yes. I mean, I know that we live in New Hampshire, but like, is there a hierarchy among defendants about like who is accused of what? And, uh, oh yeah, really? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that everybody knows what everybody's charged with. And you have cases where you have people, you know, snitches get stitches. Um, people that go in and maybe want to cozy up to the person that's in there on a big case, get that person to confide in them so that they can cut a deal in their own case. Well, I I do want to sort of like put a cap on our conversation about this, but I'm planning to continue watching this series and I'm sure we'll touch on it in future episodes. Laura and Toby, um, are you going to stick with it with us? I am. All right. So let's just quickly go around the horn. I'm going to go with Laura, Toby, and then Kevin. Nas guilty, yay or nay? Go ahead, Laura, you first. Nay. What about you, Toby? (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> You're nay on everything. How, how, can, you- how can I, I? I just I'm on the fence now. Um, I imagine he's not guilty, but it would be more interesting if he was. Kevin, I'm going with nay right now. 
I'm going with the legal series number two, Josh Reinitz, that we heard from earlier in the show when I wasn't recording, gave me a great theory of the case, and I'm kind of behind that too, but I'm not going to spoil it right now. The deer did it? (laughs) The deer did it, no. I'm going to wrap up and put a pin in our conversation about the night of for now, but I have a feeling it's going to come up again in this podcast. Listeners, if you haven't watched this show, catch up. Watch it with us. It's really, really fun. It's really interesting. It's really dark. Find a coworker and get their HBO Go password. It's real HBO. (laughs) All right. Well, last episode, we had a big announcement. We announced the inaugural, not going to say first annual because Kevin has told me there's no such thing as a first annual anything. We announced our inaugural Crime Writers on Summer Book Club. Each of us nominated a book pick. We asked you all to vote on which book we are going to read and then comment on later in the summer. Panel, uh, you've gotten a little preview of the results. Were you surprised by our audience's pick? Toby, were you surprised? I don't know what the pick is. Oh, you don't? No, that he is, he's actually, he's literally he's actually surprised. surprised. He's surprised. Well, <laughs> let me just throw it out there. I'm the winner. Yeah. I won. My book pick won. I can't believe it. Of the hundreds and hundreds of responses that we received, and I mean it, we received more responses to this than we did to our podcast survey when we did that uh, for our advertising agency a few months ago. I am the winner with 39% of the vote, and the book that I picked is Wild Lake well, with Laura clap. Wait a minute. Slow clap for me. Slow clap, guys. Slow clap. Laura okay, Lippmann. I'm clapping. How close right. was it? How close was it? I believe I was at 39%. Toby's book pick, People Who Eat Darkness, was at 31%. So the two Damn of us it. together- We were in the teens. Laura. We're at 70%. Yeah. So basically- I was um, confident last week. Sorry, guys. Laura, I for the first few tweets that we got, I really, really thought you were going to win. She was so confident that I went out and actually bought I, <laughs> I Am Pilgrim, and I, I've read like 150 pages of it. Keep reading Sucka. it. Keep it's reading good. it. Yeah, it's good. I'm sure yeah, it is. You're going to end up liking it better than my pick. But anyway, my pick is great. Uh, It's Wild Lake by Laura Lippman. Here's what it says in the back cover of Wild Lake. An African-American man accused of rape by a humiliated girl, a vengeful father, a courageous attorney, a worshipful daughter. Do you think you know this story? Think again. Laura Lippman delivers one of her best novels, A Modern Twist, on To Kill a Mockingbird. Why why did you pick this book? I picked it because I'm a Laura Lippman fan. Uh, frankly, I have been for a long time. She's the wife of your favorite writer, David uh, who Simon. Who we've spoken a lot about tonight between The Wire and Homicide, yes, David and, Simon. Uh, she yes. has a great uh, mystery series that I've followed for a long yeah. time, the Tess Monaghan Mysteries. She's just like a really fun, gritty Baltimore ex-reporter writer. I love her pro style. And when she comes out with a new novel, I read it. It's one of those people who I read their novels. But I picked it for this podcast because I listened to it on audiobook and just like really, really enjoyed the experience now that I am an audiobook listener, uh, something that I never thought I would be. So, Kevin, what do you think about the fact so that you, I picked this book? Uh, so you said you how, you didn't read this book then? No. I mean, does listening on audiobook count as reading? It does if you're using Audible. <laughs> and, like I say, why use your eyeballs when... <laughs> You can listen to... You can use your earballs. You can use your earballs. <laughs> Get the wax out of your ears and go to audible.com because they have the perfect solution for you. <laughs> if you don't have time to sit down and read, you can listen. Can I just say one thing? Yeah. This book, you should listen to an audiobook instead of reading it because there's a narrative device in this yeah. book that makes it conducive to audiobook listening over reading. I'm just going to say that. Um, so I actually, I have a little confession. This afternoon, I was like, you know what? 
I really don't feel like reading. That seems like a lot of work. I'm on vacation. (laughs) And so I dragged my little chair out to the beach with my iPad and I have Audible. I have the Audible app on my iPad and I downloaded this book and I listened to about four chapters this afternoon sitting out there in peace and quiet. And um, it's very relaxing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm also listening to it on Audible. And because you don't, I didn't have the, uh, like a, you know, the back book cover. I didn't read that. So I just went into it cold. And about like on the third chapter, I'm like, what the f***? This is like To Kill a Mockingbird. Is she? <laughs> we have all, the three of us are listening to uh, Wild Lake on Audible. Toby, what are you going to, you going to be old school and read? Like, uh, I hate reading. Listen to his you chair. Hate, you hate reading. Yeah, right. <laughs> I hate reading. So So it might go four for four. So whether you're going to go old school with the book or with listening to it on Audible, here's here's something that might really intrigue most of our listeners. If you get the Kindle version, Audible works with Kindle so that you can actually sync and go back and forth between your audio book and the Kindle version. So wherever you stop, the other one will pick up. It's a great feature. And even if you don't have Kindle, you can still listen to Audible on iPad, iPhone, Android, over 300 different MP3 players use Audible, and it's unlike a streaming service because you actually buy the book. Audible.com has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you choose, no worries, you can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. And just for listeners of Crime Writers On, you can get Audible.com for free for 30 days and you can get Wild Lake. Wild Lake. Lake. <laughs> you can also get, if you want, you can also get People Who Eat Darkness, I Am Pilgrim, and If I Did It. Or you can get whatever you like. Just go to audible.com slash crime today and start your free trial. Again, show your support for Crime Writers On and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash crime. When you listen to that audiobook, you'll be able to uh, chat with us about it in our special interactive book club podcast episode that we're planning. Announcement about that coming a little bit later this summer. So, guys, I was talking about our book club pick winner, and Kevin just, like, dove right into our ad. Laura, what did you think about that transition that Kevin made there? That was sly. It was sly. Well, Toby, what did you think about it? You know, I don't want to accuse you guys of anything, but it did seem... <laughs> Collusion? Though, yeah, it seems... A bit of a setup? Yeah, it seemed a little smooth. It seemed like there was a little, you know, maybe some hand gesturing or something going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, based on that... I have to give you a zero. <laughs> a zero? Wow. Disqualified us. Now we're going to switch gears for the back half of this podcast. One of the main reasons that Adnan Syed got his conviction vacated was that the judge felt the technology behind the cell tower evidence in the case was not accurately presented to the jury. In his decision, he quoted another case in which the judge wrote, scientific proof in some instances assume a posture of mystic infallibility in the eyes of a jury. And nothing seems more infallible than DNA found at a crime scene, a genetic fingerprint held by only one person out of billions. In fact, we've seen the groundwork for a DNA-based case being laid out in that HBO show we were just talking about, The Night Of. We watched Nas walk through scenes, bleeding, touching things, and we're thinking, they're going to get him on the DNA. Well, one thing I was really surprised to learn recently is about the many scientific problems that exist around DNA, specifically DNA mixtures. 
And this is all a result of the fact that technology to detect DNA has gotten so sensitive. Now, recently, Kevin had a conversation to learn more about this problem. In the June issue of Playboy magazine, science writer Chris Burdick reported how problems at the crime scene, in the lab, and in the courtrooms have led to bad convictions around DNA mixtures. His article focused on a 1993 case in which a man named Kerry Robinson was charged along with two other men for a gang rape. DNA in the victim's rape kit was a partial match with Robinson, and that was enough to convict him. We're going to listen to that for just a few minutes now, and then we're going to talk about it. Kevin, do you want to set up this interview for us? Yeah, Chris is a very well-respected science writer. He's not a crime writer. So I asked him, how did this case get on your radar? Well, I was doing a, a smaller piece uh, for uh, a magazine out of Boston University on some researchers there who were working on software that could help forensic scientists understand mixtures and, and to first understand how many people contributed to a mixture and then to, to possibly understand the statistics of the matching uh, between one suspect and the mixture or another suspect in the mixture. And when I started to research this, I, I had never heard of mixtures before. I thought DNA was DNA, and I thought it either exonerated people, as, as has happened, or it led to the criminal. And I started reading that every year for the past five years or so, uh, a group of scientists have sent out mixtures to different labs to see you know, what they make of them, and the results that are all over the map. I realized that DNA mixtures are the preponderance of DNA evidence now. And in the research for this piece, I, I read about Carrie Robinson's case and the fact that a, a biologist had been contacted by the lawyer that they, the family had hired, and he had sent out the evidence to a lab where 17 different uh, forensic scientists looked at the evidence uh, independently, and only one of them agreed with the original investigators. Twelve of them uh, said that Carrie Robinson should be excluded from the crime, uh, and that kind of led me into this case, and I went down to Georgia and met his family, and I talked to Carrie over the phone. Kind of one thing led to another, and it just really uh, showed me kind of how big this case is. So let's just start with the basics. If you find a drop of my blood on the floor all by itself and the DNA says it's me, there's no doubt it's me, right? Yes. The uh, forensic scientists look at 13 locations on the genome, just a tiny little window into your your DNA. And if your 13 locations match that uh, sample from the evidence, then yes, it's you. But there are apparently ways that we can misinterpret something that's supposed to be so clearly statistically certain as DNA, and it happens to do with DNA mixtures. The problem is now that DNA testing is so sensitive, it can pick up nanograms worth of DNA. Uh, so a, an example I use in the article is if you handed your friend a beer at a party, the friend drank the beer, left it, and uh, later a drunk smashed the bottle and killed somebody with that bottle, a forensic scientist would swab the bottle and find DNA from your touching of the bottle, DNA from the saliva of your friend drinking, uh, DNA from the murderer touching the bottle, and, and DNA from the blood, all mixed up. Not only does that sort of add to the idea that it could be any one of the four of you, but sort of that whole mix of different DNA can actually have false positives for, for people who aren't even there. Yes, yeah, so that, that's called uh, transferred DNA, and this uh, happens a lot. Basically, because it's just a, a few nanograms of DNA, it can be carried in house dust. Uh, when you sneeze, a little DNA can get out. There was a case in Germany where the police were befuddled by a serial criminal that they kept finding the DNA profile of in case after case after case. Uh, it turned out to be just a little bit of touch DNA from a woman who worked in the factory that made the swabs that the investigators used. Now, you have a great metaphor about uh, Scrabble tiles in a bag that kind of explain this in a way. Could you tell us that? 
Sure. So as I mentioned, they look at about 13, sometimes a few more spots on the genome. At each spot, there are two markers, essentially one from your father, one from your mother. Uh, and in the article, I, com- I make the analogy that those markers could be Scrabble tiles with the letters of your name. You put them all in a hat, you pick them out. If it's just one person's name and you compare those Scrabble tiles to a list of names, you can pretty easily find the matches. Uh, but if you add three or four other people's names into that hat, all those Scrabble tiles together, and you take them out, the number skyrockets. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking here. You, you use the example, if you use Barack Obama's name, you're not going to get Ronald Reagan. That's but right. if you use Barack Obama, Grover Cleveland, George Washington, and Dwight Eisenhower, you can spell all those names, plus Ronald Reagan, Woodrow Wilson, Abraham Lincoln, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, Theodore Roosevelt, and Warren Harding. Not to extend the metaphor to Scrabble and Boggle letters, <laughs> but is it true that scientists could look and all of a sudden start seeing DNA or what they think is DNA from people who aren't even there? Well, yes, they can, because although there are these variations, we share some of these variations. Uh, there's a big database that is kept by the FBI of DNA profiles of people that have been arrested or convicted of crimes. And when they do statistical studies of that database, they find that uh, one out of five people share at least two markers on their DNA fingerprint. You know, because DNA isn't always in pristine condition when it's collected in the field, there can be problematic holes in a sample. And I think right. this is, it leads to when you talk about drop-ins and drop-outs. So if I, we'll go back to that Scrabble analogy uh, quickly. Imagine if heat and light could disintegrate one of your Scrabble tiles that was put into the hat. So you took them out and, and there was a J in there and, and it's gone. That's called drop-out. That happens with DNA all the time. The other thing that happens with DNA is called drop-in. And that's because when they get a tiny bit of DNA, uh, the scientists have to amplify it. And they do this chemically, and they essentially take a tiny piece of DNA and try to create a signal out of it. And when they do that, sometimes they get these little phantom markers that aren't real. You write that three men were arrested for this gang rape, Tyrone White, Carrie Robinson, and Cedric Moore. Prosecutors said there were DNA matches for all three men in the rape kit. So while you might think that it's statistically in the quadrillions that it's anybody except these three men, there were varying degrees of match among the three men in the DNA mixture. Tyrone White actually had 11 out of 13 of his uh, locations match the DNA uh, in the sample. Kerry Robinson and Cedric Moore only had two out of the 13. And uh, I don't know what the match probability actually is, but I do know that uh, a forensic scientist had Carrie Robinson's DNA and the evidence looked at by 17 different forensic scientists. Only one of them agreed with the investigators uh, from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation that Carrie Robinson could not be excluded from the evidence. Four of them said they couldn't make any sense of the DNA, and 12 of them said he should definitely be excluded uh, based on the evidence uh, from that crime. At one point, you give an example where the sample, which could be one in 10 billion, is actually something like one in 10. That, yes. Forensic scientists use various statistical methods to kind of compare the matches that they find. You know, it's usually incomplete. They, they very rarely will find all 13 matching locations with their suspect. They use various statistical methods, but what 
what the investigator in this case found upon re-examining the evidence was that the forensic scientists had essentially ignored those locations where she did not have complete information rather than take them into account when she did the statistics. So it did reduce the probability uh, by a factor of six orders of magnitude, something like that. I think that we've sort of been trained as jurors or people in the public that when you say DNA, there's no question that the odds are in the billions. However, when there are cases where it can be something as small as, you know, one in 10 or, you know, one in 100 or, or, or whatever on the smaller end, maybe we don't understand really that, that it, you know, it isn't the slam dunk, that it, it's in the statistical probability that this is not the right person. I mean, they call it the CSI effect. Essentially, if you hear that in, in the courtroom, people just kind of think about the crime shows where they plug the uh, the DNA into a computer and it leads you to the culprit. And by the end of the half hour, uh, you've solved the crime. It just doesn't work that way. Now, I was watching the latest O.J. Simpson documentary, and just forget everything else we know about evidence all over Los Angeles about this. At one point, they said at the crime scene, they found a, in a puddle of blood the DNA of Nicole Simpson, Ron Goldman, and O.J. Simpson. Is it within the realm of possibility that if we examine that with today's science and with the potential flaws that can come from a DNA mixture, that they could get a false positive on somebody like O.J. Simpson in that particular case? Hmm. I don't I don't know that case as well. I mean, in terms of the, the forensics that were done there, but it certainly is. I mean, you have far more sensitive tests now. You could pick up nanograms of DNA from somebody who was at the crime scene a week prior. But on the other hand, you do have the ability to test more locations on the genome. So you have a few more data points. But in general, uh, it's become a lot easier now to have false positives with current tests. It sounds like a vacuum cleaner that does really great at sucking up dirt, but it also gets your shag carpet caught in there, too. Yeah, right. And and, and they're, they're taking that vacuum cleaner to just about every crime scene they go to now. Yeah, that, that's, that's as much science as I can probably get in there <laughs> is the, the Dyson uh, theory. Public confidence in DNA seems to be a critical, critically important to both the state and the defense in the courtroom. So what do you think can be done to ensure that the statistical probabilities for each submitted sample is accurate in the lab and accurately portrayed at trial? Right. So a number of things could happen. One would be to encourage the separation of crime labs from, from law enforcement that would remove that pressure to interpret iffy evidence in a certain way uh, that would would help the prosecution. That would be one, one step. The other step would be to uh, increase training that lawyers get about DNA. It's a very, very complicated stuff. When you get down to the uh, arguments over the evidence, it's often not just biochemistry, but also statistics. So it is not something that a lot of lawyers have a great amount of understanding of and experience with. So to increase that would also help. And then to have some kind of national standards on the interpretation of DNA. There are national standards for how DNA should be handled in the lab and those kinds of things. But in terms of whether or not you count two matching alleles as something that can connect a suspect with a, with a crime or, or whether it needs to be three or four, there are no standards along those lines. And, um, and I think that would put some more uh, certainty into when that evidence is brought into court, how strong it actually is. A big thanks to Chris Burdick. His article for Playboy magazine is called The Unraveling of DNA Forensics. You can find a link to that story on our website, crimewriterson.com. Just go to the episodes page and you will see the links on the post for this week's show. Now, Laura, Chris says that it's not common knowledge among a lot of defense attorneys that DNA 
isn't infallible. You know, we certainly think, I think, as media consumers that if there's DNA, you did it. Have you heard about this before? I mean, did this any of this information surprise you? It did. You know, I hadn't. I actually haven't worked on a criminal defense case in two years. And it looks like when I was kind of reading up on this today that this kind of started to make news maybe last year in 2015. So it wasn't something that, you know, had come up in cases that I've worked on. But I will say that, you know, defense attorneys, the ones that I know, they all subscribe to like listservs through whatever, like the state defense attorney association or the local group. And they all share information like this. So I would suspect by now people are talking about this. My question is, though, this is new sort of information. So in cases where a defense attorney wants to challenge something like this, they need to find an expert witness. And I'd question if, you know, at this stage in the game, there are enough kind of scientific people that would be qualified to be expert witnesses on this information. Now, this idea that science has gotten too good and like too micro to do a good job sort of identifying people in criminal cases. Does that sort of jive with your like weird dystopian sensibility? Or were you just really surprised to hear that science can be too good to solve a case? I think the, the problem is with a lot of this stuff is the way it's presented and the way people understand it. Because it's not really that the science is too good. It's that the people don't understand it, don't explain it well, or intentionally don't explain it well. To me, it generally comes down to like technology seems kind of neutral and that it's a matter of how it's used and whether people are forthright about what you can actually expect from it and what you can't. I think from just like the stuff that we've looked at over the course of all our podcast episodes and, you know, things I've read and stuff, you know, it's just got to be very, very tempting for prosecution, especially when facing a defense that is perhaps overworked or not on top of everything, to take advantage of that and to use this evidence in a way that, to me, would not seem ethical. I guess that, that would be that would be more my concern than the fact that now it's just so sensitive that, you know, if you touched a beer bottle, it might get some, you know, sweat DNA mixed in with the guy who you know, stab somebody with a broken beer bottle later. When we look at any kind of forensic science, whether it's DNA, whether it's fingerprints, we say it's science, yet a lot of it is still open to the interpretation and the development by technicians and scientists. Right. So, you know, we think about fingerprints. Fingerprints have been accepted in courts for over 100 years. However, when the FBI, as early as uh, 2001, about there, started looking at labs that do fingerprint testing and looking at the technicians and giving them tests and throwing a couple of false fingerprints in there, and then many of them were, were doing false positives and saying this is this fingerprint is a match when it, they knew it wasn't. Right. So there is still a human factor involved in the empirical science. So in the way that it gets interpreted, it can be interpreted wrong, it can be presented wrong. And so one of the solutions that, you know, Chris throws out is the possibility that all these labs should not be part of the police department. They should all be independent. So they're not under some sort of overt or covert pressure to come up with a certain result. So Kevin, what is your big takeaway? No? 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 (laughs) 
Hold You're lucky we're not Are grading we you to on have this an one. Ad right now? Yes. Yeah. You're lucky we're not grading yeah. you on this yeah. one. No, I had to, you, you changed up the questions and I was I said right here. No, 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 Kevin, big takeaway. It says you, it you right there. You skipped four questions before you got to that. Yeah, cuz we covered them. Yeah, well, I was expecting something else. <laughs> so would it be helpful um, to disseminate this DNA information if somebody had like a website with this information? <gasps> <laughs> 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 Laura, if you were going to build a website with uh, about DNA information, what platform would you use to build it on? Well, I don't know, Kevin. Would you use Weebly? Uh, yes, you would use Weebly. <laughs> Thirty. My ten-year-old daughter put together a. a site. And Kevin doesn't even know how to start talking about it. So, Kevin, you want to give us another shot? So, Kevin, what's your big takeaway from your interview with Chris Burdick? Go. Well, I think that if uh, I were going to set up my own business as an expert witness to refute <laughs> DNA, I would need a website. Yes. And you don't have Wait, to be. Everyone? Thank you. Nice Stop, job. Kevin. And you don't have to be a computer scientist to understand the best way of doing that is using Weebly. Weebly. If you think like cracking DNA code is complicated, how about you do this? Go to any website, right-click, and say view page. View source. View source. Yeah. And look at the letters that come up. That is how a single web page is coded. You don't have to know how to do all that coding because Weebly help you out, and they have great templates to start. So even if you don't know, like, great color schemes, you don't have to know analogous and complementary colors. Rebecca, what's the opposite color of purple? Yellow. You got it. Boom. Boom. <laughs> Laura, what's the opposite color of red? Oh, God. Blue? And I don't green. know. Green. See, your website would suck. But if you had <laughs> but if you had Weebly, that would help you fit all that stuff up. It's going to look nice and sharp. All you have to do is drag and drop. Not drop and drag. I said drop and drag last week, and you I got did. so much shade on the internet. Because it's backwards to say drop and drag. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe people are doing it wrong. <laughs> So you can truly customize, update, and change your website anytime you want from any device. Do it remotely. Update your website and join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at Weebly.com slash Crime Writers. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash Crime Writers. writers. Weebly.com slash Crime Writers. Writers. Right. All right, so now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little thing I like to call the Crime, the of, the crime of the crime Week. Crime of the Week. Crime of the Week. <laughs> Pokemon Go. It's been all the rage with players walking around cities, towns, and the country looking for locations where they can capture hidden video game monsters on their smartphones. This digital scavenger hunt is drawing praise for getting pasty-skinned gamers, <laughs> young and old, out in some goddamn fresh air. But like your son? And you and me, by the way. I wasn't playing. I was just walking along with you. But it's also driving some people nuts, especially the outdoorsy types who also marathon and enjoy bird books, as the real world and the virtual world are colliding. Yeah. I'd like cars hitting police cars and people doing All right, Pokemon. all right. Yeah. We have heard of absent-minded players wandering into traffic, getting into car accidents, getting mugged, trespassing, rushing into an adult bookstore to track various Pokemon. There have even That's been... That's a peek not a Pikachu. There have even been people, and this happened more than once, once here in New Hampshire even, who've stumbled across dead bodies while hunting monsters. Jesus. This has got to be one of the weirdest stories. Two men followed the trail into a church prayer garden 
and discovered a naked woman vandalizing a religious statue while playing Pokemon Go. And no, she was not playing the game. So here's my question for you, panel. And Toby, I'm going to start with you. What is the worst possible thing you'd stumble across looking for Pokemon in Pokemon Go? Probably, I don't know, a pit of snakes. (laughs) Indiana Jones? Yeah. Up at our... My, my parents' summer place up on this island, uh, we have these snakes that live under the house this summer <gasps> for some reason. We don't normally. They're just garter snakes. Mm. But uh, it is like and, – and you know, so they're not going to do anything to you. But every once in a while, they'll just be walking along and be like, oh, shit, there's a snake. <laughs> it's a nightmare, And if you're like right? searching for Pokemon, you're probably more likely to be surprised. You need to bring your death cat there. <laughs> yeah, I should. That's actually a great idea. I hadn't even thought about that. Little foot, little foot strikes again. That would be serious because one of those snakes is about like two and a half, three feet long. That would be a serious – A three-foot-long like, garter snake? Are you kidding? Uh, like it and Littlefoot would have like a Wild Kingdom style. Yeah. Marlon Perkins. <laughs> what about you, Laura? What is the worst possible thing that you would stumble across while looking for Pokemon in Pokemon Go? Well, I'm going to tell you, first of all, what I would like to stumble across. I don't know if anyone has seen the spinoff game for mothers called Chardonnay Go. <laughs> um, I, I have seen that. But I have to say, when I saw that, I was like, this is like perfect Chardonnay. That is my favorite wine. This is a game for me. But what I would be afraid of stumbling across, and I have to, there's a bear that has been up here where we are on the lake, and it's been seen up the road. And every day when I take Buddy the dog for a walk, I'm like, today is going to be the day that I stumble across that bear. And what the hell do I do? I haven't watched enough Alaska the Bush People to know <laughs> what I should do. And I'm going to get killed. So that's probably what would happen to me. Too bad Buddy's not named Ginger, right? It could be like <laughs> yelling after him. Kevin, what about you? What's the worst thing that you could stumble across playing Pokemon Go? Uh, Maura Murray? <laughs> <laughs> is Maura Murray like an option in the game or is that No, just- I'm just saying like what could I stumble in the woods? <laughs> I mean, I think the the second worst thing would be to be playing Pokemon Go and stumble across Toby washing his car naked. Oh, that's not going to happen. You, you have to pay admission for that. Oh, <laughs> uh, we should probably end it on that note, eh? Yay. Let's right. do that. I'm not going to even mention the zombies that I'm afraid of stumbling across in Pokemon Go. So, Toby Ball, if our listeners want to tweet with you and give you crap about your fear of the pit of ferocious garter snakes underneath your Lake Winnipesaukee family cabin, how can they tweet to you? At Toby Ball NH. And, Laura, if our listeners want to tweet with you and give you bear repelling tips, how can they tweet with you? At Laura Bricker. And Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to tweet with you and give you tips on improving your ad delivery, how can they do that? You're afraid of zombies, right? Yes. (laughs) What's our safe word? We have a safe word for this. Just say your Twitter handle. Just say it. (laughs) (laughs) You can find. I was going to do the laughing thing again. (laughs) Here it comes. I know it. Here it comes. At Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet or find me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. Directions for how to do that are posted right on our website, crimewriterson.com, on the blog section. While you're there, you can sign up for our awesome newsletter. You can make a PayPal donation to help support this studio. Or you can buy stuff using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. And if you love this show, please, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners find us and keeps us on the charts. 
Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the podcasting empire we keep in a tiny hot closet in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. So, I, so we should definitely do the crime writers on drinking game where we yes. drink. Every I would send the tequila time. to Toby because it's very bad if I drink that. Do you get? Do you have tequila anger like I do? Yeah, I punched a guy in the face once. What? <laughs> I punched I him in the face. Thing. I pick fights. I love tequila. I love it. But then I totally it's pick fights. It's mommy's angry juice. But however, <laughs> Laura, you, Laura, you put, uh, what is, okay. You punched a guy in the face? Okay. What is the story? I'll set the scene because I'm not so much. It was like New Year's Eve. I was in college. I was home. I kind of passed out and I might have woken up and I thought that my boyfriend was hooking up with someone else and I like ran across the room and I was like, you bastard. And I punched him in the face and then I think I got sick. And then I realized it wasn't even my boyfriend. I I didn't even know who it punched. Better safe than sorry. (laughs) 